Today, uh, we're going to go and continue on our series on prayer. This is the third part. And today, we're going to talk about prayer, the prayer of adoration and the prayer of thanksgiving. Now, last week, we started with one of the different kinds of prayers that we have. And we talked about the prayer of repentance. And I would let you know that at the end of this short series, you will never again be at a loss for how to pray. How many of you have ever wondered, like, what am I supposed to pray? You know, especially if you pray in public, right? Like, what am I supposed to do? And when I go and pray, I'm like, Lord, bless us, bless them, amen. <laughs> you know, it's like, why is my prayer three seconds long? <laughs> but I um, want to promise you that at the end of the series, you're not going to have enough time of the day to actually pray. So, um, as Andre read in Ephesians 6, verse 16, we saw right there, it says that praying at all times, which includes this time, in the Spirit, with all prayer. Many translations render that with all kinds of prayer. There are many different kinds of prayer. Now, in the first two weeks, of course, we established that prayer is something that can be taught and more so that actually should be taught. Prayer is not something that you naturally have. You don't have that language naturally. Just like any other language, you have to study, you have to learn it by speaking it. You see, uh, the disciples said to Jesus, Jesus, teach us how to pray. And Jesus didn't come back to them and say, sorry folks, um, that's, not, that's not a skill. Uh, it's, it, it's a gift. In other words, you either have it or you don't. That's not what Jesus said. Because anybody that wants to learn how to pray can learn how to pray. Because Jesus went on and taught them how to pray. Now I want you to imagine with me for a moment a praying family. In your imagination, what does a praying family look like? Now, Every single person who is born again and has fear of the Lord, if you had to ask them, do you pray enough, they would say no. So I already know that every single one of us would go, praying family, I wish I had one. Well, my point is just this, that every one of us need to improve um, our prayer life individually and our family prayer life. As a husband, it is my job to increase the times and the, the, my prayer life with my wife and my prayer life with my children. But imagine praying, not a praying family, but imagine praying families in the same community. Now imagine at an actual praying church. Now that is a high probable probability, but it starts with you and I learning how to pray. It always starts with me. Now I, there's a lot of things I want to see happen in my family, a lot of things I want to see happen in my life, but it all starts right here and right now. Don't think for a moment that you're gonna to learn to pray some other day. No, this is your day to learn how to do it and this is your day to actually put time aside in the morning, in the evening, in the middle of the day to actually practice these prayers. Otherwise, it's just, you just heard another sermon, right? And so, I don't want this to be a sermon. I want this to be a message. A message has your address on it, it has your name on it, and it comes straight to you, and it's God's 
message to you, God encouraging you into something. There's no other exercise more important for you than this one in the beginning of the year. <clears throat> now, there was a lady by the name Mary. She became the Queen of Scotland. Her reign started in December the 14th, 1542. Now, if you can think about the, what the world looked like in 1542, if you imagine that the Reformation was triggered in 1517. So this is well into the, the run to the Reformation. But all those original reformers were still alive. All right? So here, Mary, she was in her teens. She was still young. Uh, she ascends the throne. And um, Scotland, at that point, when she ascends the throne, was already thoroughly reformed. Reformers went from everywhere, came to Geneva, got trained, and went around the whole world. And John Knox and some of these reformers, he was, of course, the, the foremost guy in Scotland, really sparked the Reformation in a very, very big way in Scotland to the point where it was pretty much outlawed to still practice Roman Catholicism. But Mary, Queen of Scots, when she ascended the throne, of course, she was not part of the Reformation. And as a result, entered a public war of words with John Knox, a true spiritual lightning rod during this Reformation. So here's this young queen having major public arguments with this reformer. John Knox was a fearless man. And when addressing the queen publicly, he was very strong, very clear in what he, in, in his position, uh, which once caused Queen of Mary to actually burst into tears. Uh, now she made, she made this famous statement, I don't know if you've heard it before, but she's the one who said this, that I fear John Knox's prayers more than all the assembled armies of Europe. Mary Queen of Scots because she saw this man praying and it literally breathed fear into her knowing that she was in opposition to him and may we know as a people may we be known as a people that we are a people of prayer when people think of us may they think of people who truly pray know how to pray tell you what when you fall on hard times when you have a, a terminal illness when something happens like that who do you go to first the person you know who can pray with you right that's usually what people do now of course you should first run to the Lord but for the most part what people do is they run to those who know they run to those they know can pray and that's one thing that the world will do they will run to you if they know that you are a person of prayer now, we've already uh, concluded that there are different kinds of prayer. Like I mentioned, we discussed the prayer of repentance last week. And um, then we have the prayer of thanksgiving, prayer of praise, prayer of worship, prayer of consecration, prayer of supplication, the prayer of faith. We have the Lord's Prayer, and then we have calling on the name of the Lord. And hopefully, it is my goal, at least, uh, to be able to walk through most of these on our list. However, today, I would like us to look at two kinds of prayer which is the prayer of adoration and the prayer of thanksgiving. The prayer of adoration and the prayer of thanksgiving. Now in my mind, this would work systematically. 
For instance, if you go on your knees and you pray the prayer of repentance, um, then beyond that, you can immediately easily flow into the prayer of adoration. And right after the prayer of adoration, you can pray the prayer of praise, or you can go into the prayer of thanksgiving. Now let's look for a moment at the prayer of adoration and what that is. This is really one of the best ways to start your praying after praying the prayer of repentance. You will find that the book of Psalms lean heavily toward the prayer of adoration. You know, whenever you open up the book of Psalms, he's busy just praising God or he's busy talking about how great God is. When you talk about how great God is, that is really the prayer of adoration. God, you're so awesome. God, you're all powerful. God, you are majestic. God, the splendor of your name and the glorious splendor of your of your anointing. That is adoration. So you can literally pick up the Bible, find a psalm of adoration, and pray it. That is a prayer of adoration. So you're never without words. Oftentimes people say, like, I don't know how, I don't know what to say when I pray. Pick up the Bible, find the psalm, pray the prayer of adoration by quoting those verses in a prayerful way. Now the dictionary defines adoration as to have a deep love and respect for someone. When you adore them, you have a deep love for them and a great respect for them. But then the, the dictionary goes beyond that, accurately so, and calls it a, a way of worship. It's to worship or to venerate. So in other words, you have a deep respect, a, a great love. You can go beyond that and become and start worshiping this one you adore and venerate them. Now, even though the, the dictionary shows us that, we have to also know that there's a distinction between those two terms. You can adore, yet not worship. So again, you can adore and not worship. For instance, a husband can adore his wife without worshiping her. You can adore your children without worshiping them. However, you cannot worship God without adoring Him. So there is a distinction between those two terms. The one is not necessarily the other one, but the other one is definitely includes the first, right? And, and so whenever, you come, whenever it comes time to worship, and you don't know what you are doing other than just singing a song, this is actually training in worship also. This is the explanation of what you are doing when you worship. You are adoring God, not only because of what He's done, but because of who He is. That is worship. So there has to be the element of adoration in order for something to be worship. We find an example of how adoration and worship connects with each other in the account of the wise men when they came to bear gifts to Jesus, the newborn king. It's in Matthew chapter 2, verse 2. It says, where, he, where is he who has been born, the king of the Jews? For we saw this star, we saw his star, where it rose and have come to worship him. Now, the word translated worship there in Matthew 2, verse 2, is really the, the word proscunio. Uh, so I looked this up on YouTube and I learned how to pronounce it, so you know. 
The word proskunio is also translated adore, which means the wise men came to adore and show reverence to the new king, Jesus. They came to worship him. That's why we sing the song, Oh, come, let us adore him. Because we are emulating what the wise men did. But that word adore and the word worship are the same words. So within his worship was adoration. And then we find the word in the Old Testament that is most often used for adoration is a Hebrew word, uh, shaka. Shaka, which is also worship. Therefore, the worship in John 4, verse 23 and 24, can also be translated shaka or adore. Because that word worship, shaka, is also the word adore. So again, we see that. Let's read it in John 4, 23 and 24. Now, we know it to be to say, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. But really, that word worship, shaka, can be translated as adore. For instance, you can read it this way. But the hour is coming and is not here when the true worshipers will shaka, adore, the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people who worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must adore Him in spirit and in truth. So I want to encourage you, family, that worship is not to be dry. Praise is not to be dry. It's not to be dead. It's to be that moment where you go, oh, I'm so, you know, like when you see, when you're a grandparent and you see your, great, your grandchildren, you're like, oh, I adore my grandchildren. Or you see somebody you really love, you adore them because of who they are. There is a definite desire to be with them, to hug them, to hear from them, to communicate with them. That is what happens when you adore somebody. But when we worship God, that very same desire needs to be within our hearts. When you close your eyes and you raise your hands and you worship Him, you are adoring Him for who He is. You just love Him for who He is. Now, Thanksgiving, we're talking about that, is a little different. It's not adoration, it's adoring Him for who He is. Thanksgiving is thanking Him for what He has done. And those are two different kinds of prayers. But adoration... The prayer of adoration is you adoring God for who He is, and that is, if not worship, close to it. Now, a key understanding here is to realize that to adore Jesus is to love Him, to hold Him dear, to cherish Him, to treasure Him, to respect Him, to worship Him, to venerate Him. That is what it means to adore Him for who He is. Not because of what He's done for you. You adore Him because you, are, you revere that, how holy He is. You respect the divine. You're in awe at His righteousness and how perfect He is, sinless He is. You, you, are, um, you venerate, you cherish, you hold dear, you treasure the fact that He is God. So that's how your prayer would go. Your prayer of adoration. Lord, I adore you. 
I love you. I treasure you. The most valuable relationship I have is the one I have with you. I respect you. I venerate you. I worship you. Because you are divine. You are holy. You are righteous. You are omnipresent. You are omnipotent. You are eternal. I mean, every single attribute of God. If you know the attributes of God, you can pray the prayer of adoration for hours. So I want to encourage you. That's why it's always so important, you know, like in the Reformed tradition, we always say, um, you know, if you have a high view of God, you will also have a high worship of Him. Your worship can only go as high as your view of Him. That's why it's important to understand the attributes of God. Let me say that. Now, we can learn how to pray the prayer of adoration by the Psalms, as I mentioned. For instance, there are certain Psalms where the author declares some of his attributes, his strength, his splendor, his beauty, and his holiness. For instance, in Psalm 29, verse 1 and 2, it says, Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. In other words, attribute to Him glory. God, you are so glorious. I mean, look at the sunrise. Look at the beauty of everything. You should come drive through my neighborhood when it snows like this. It's absolutely gorgeous. You think it's an amazing thing. And then in the summer, you go, wow, it's a total different picture. And then in the fall, it's an amazing thing. And then you look at this, the sunset. And I, and I remember when we were on vacation, we went on this road trip. We went through the Badlands. We went through North South Dakota. I mean, it, it, it's so beautiful. Some places are just breathtakingly beautiful. But that has got nothing on heaven, which has nothing on the beauty of his holiness. You see, God is the one who designed the concept of beauty. And he is the one who placed within us the desire to always pursue and love and be attracted to that which is beautiful. Beauty is something that God placed in us in order to desire more of him. Because the more you see him, the more beautiful it becomes, and the more enamored you are with him. And the more beautiful he becomes, the less interested you become with all the other things that shine in this world and that glitter. So we can pray with the psalmist here in Psalm 20, 29, verse 1 and 2. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Attribute to God, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord. Attribute to the Lord glory and strength. Attribute to the Lord the glory due to his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. In Psalm 22, verse 3, again he says, Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. So in other words, whenever you're declaring truths about who God is, and you're doing it to Him, you are praying the prayer of adoration. And when you pray the prayer of adoration, the more you adore Him, the more it changes you. You cannot pray the prayer of adoration for any length of time without it touching your own heart. So this prayer right here, again, it doesn't necessarily give you something, it takes something away from you. It takes away the hard heart.
takes away the arrogance. It takes away the indifference that people have towards God. Another psalm that declares the value of his love for us is Psalm 36, 7. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. See, the psalmist is praying. He says, how precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. This is the prayer of adoration. So my suggestion, family, to you is as you read through the Bible with us in 2024, for those of you that are taking the Bible reading challenge, I want to encourage you to get yourself a highlighter, maybe a yellow one, but only one color. Take that highlighter and highlight all the prayers of adoration that you can find in the book of Psalms. And um, so your, your, your book of Psalms will be completely marked up, right? And if you can't mark in your Bible, throw it away and get one you can mark in, right? Find that one that works. And highlight all the prayers of adoration. And every time you go into your prayer closet, you can open up your Bible and start praying the prayer of adoration by simply praying those scriptures sincerely from the heart. Now, you're not going to have enough time in the day to pray. That is the prayer of adoration. We have to, we have to get out of the habit of praying only for us and those we know that need Him, that need God's blessing, healing, and so forth. Prayer has to do with you and God speaking, but predominantly with you glorifying Him. Now let's go to the second prayer, which is the prayer of thanksgiving. That's the second prayer in today's session, but our previous session we had the prayer of repentance, so this would be the third prayer in a row. But this prayer is the prayer of thanksgiving. This prayer also does something inside of your heart. Again, if you struggle with hardened heart, the answer is prayer. For most, most part, when people struggle with a hardened heart, they start pointing to people around them, right? They point to their parents, their spouse, their neighbors, their boss. That's what a hardened heart does. They start pointing to the government. Everybody, everybody should, should get the act together because you guys are destroying my life. <laughs> and why am I not happy? <laughs> but, in, but the truth is, if you have a hardened heart, what is necessary is prayer. But know how to pray and not just say, God, give me a soft heart. <laughs> you know? God gives us these means to pray. These prayers are means by which He will do things within us. So the prayer of thanksgiving. See, Scripture frequently exhorts us to include thanksgiving in our prayers. For instance, in Colossians 4.2, it says, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. So in other words, you have to be steadfast in your prayer, Try and keep your prayers uninterrupted. Make sure you don't go through a month without praying or a week without praying or even a day without praying. But when you do, be watchful that you do so with the attitude of thanksgiving. Then in Philippians 4 verse 6 it says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Let your requests be made known to God. How do you come to God? With thanksgiving. You come with thanksgiving. Now, thanksgiving is the attitude we approach God in, right? No matter which, pray, which prayer we are praying, 
we come to him with thanksgiving. However, it is also a prayer in itself where you can spend time only doing that, only giving thanks to God. Just like when you're praying this, the prayer of repentance, what you are doing is you're coming to God with a contrite heart. You're coming to God regretful for what you have done or violate how you have violated him. Not because of what you've lost. Remember, that's Judas. But David didn't cry before God because of what, of his, what he lost because of his sin. He cried before God because of what he had done to God. That's the prayer of repentance. And then the prayer um, of adoration. You know, then you pray the prayer of adoration. And that could take you forever, uh, depending on how you mark up the book of Psalms. Then when you come to thanksgiving, it is also a prayer in itself, even though you come to God with thanksgiving when you come to repent. Because remember, you, don't, you cannot repent unless God gives you the ability to repent. Repentance in the Bible is called a gift. It's the gift of repentance. It's not your work. It's God's gift that you exercise and practice. And so when we come to the pr pray the prayer of repentance, we come with a thankful heart that we even get to repent. Remember how Esau went, sought repentance, a place of repentance, but couldn't find it? When he looked for the blessing? And so when the apostles saw that even the Gentiles were glorifying God with the gospel because of the gospel, since they believed that the gospel was only for the Jews, they looked and they saw the Gentiles glorifying God. They started praising God and they said, we now see that God has given repentance even to the Gentiles and not just to the Jews. That he gave them repentance also. Repentance is a gift. So when we come to pray the prayer of repentance, we come with a thankful heart. God, thank you that I even want to repent. Thank you, God, that I can find this place to repent, that I can beg you for mercy. When you come adoration, you thank him for who, uh, you, you, you come to adore who he is, but you come with a thankful heart. And beyond that, you come and you thank him with a thankful heart for all that he has done for you. David, Praise this often in the book of Psalms. You can take a different color marker and you can pray all the, all the prayers of thanksgiving. All the prayers of thanksgiving and just mark it with a different color so that when you get to the prayer of thanksgiving, you know where to go. Jesus prays on various occasions the prayer of thanksgiving, for instance, right before he breaks the bread, he always thanks God and then breaks the bread. In Matthew eleven twenty five, Jesus thanks God for hiding the truth of the gospel to the people of three different cities. He says, God, I thank you that you have hidden this from those people. You and I, you know, when we go and we pray, when we go to evangelize and somebody rejects the message, we're all bummed out. Jesus, on the other hand, he turns and he raises his hands and he says, Father, I thank you. You've hidden it. That's in Matthew eleven twenty-five. You can go read it yourself. 
I want to um, read to you something E.M. Bounds says in his book on prayer. Quote, he says, Gratitude is an inward emotion of the soul, involuntarily arising therein. While thanksgiving, on the other hand, is the voluntary expression of gratitude. So what he's saying is, gratitude is different from thanksgiving. Gratitude bubbles up in your heart towards somebody who's been good to you. But that's gratitude. Thanksgiving is a completely different thing. Thanksgiving is when you take whatever bubbles up in your heart and you go, thank you. <laughs> you actually say it. <laughs> you actually do something to show the gratitude you have. Gratitude never becomes thanksgiving until you act upon it. He says, I continue, quote, Thanksgiving is just what the word is just what the word itself signifies, the giving of thanks to God. It is giving something to God in words, which we feel at, 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 at our hearts for the blessings that we have received. He says, gratitude arises from my contemplation of the goodness of God. It is bred by the serious meditation on what God has done for us. End of quote. So in other words, you might say, well, Jacques, I don't have that bubbling up in my heart. Well, I'll tell you now, the reason people especially young people struggle with this idea of thanksgiving is because the gratitude, the gratitude isn't sufficient to trigger the tongue to give thanks. There's not enough gratitude within the heart to make a person go, you know what, I just want to thank you so much. Now we can teach them answer keys to life uh, this is what you do. Say thank you. Thank you. Okay. Because if you don't say thank you, you're not getting another one of these candies. All right. Thank you then. Can I have another one? <laughs> thank you. Can I have another one? <laughs> so what we do is we turn them into kind of like um, like these dog trainers, right? These dog whisperers. We train our kids to do the right things all the time. But really, at the end of the day, we have to train. It's very difficult to train the heart. Very, very difficult to train the heart. But that's what we're doing right now, right here. This is heart training. So my encouragement to you is understand that meditation wasn't, an, wasn't something that people came up with in the East. Meditation is what God called us to do. I remember when um, I had to go and meet with Robert's teacher, his principal, actually for the last time, I think I went to his principal six times in one year to complain. I'm the complainer guy. <laughs> they see you walk into the office and I could see them all like... Close, close the door, shut the blinds. <laughs> but anyway, um, Tina happened upon a video, a YouTube video, where his teacher posted this video of her classroom where they were all meditating, right? And so they were all the kids, all of Robert's friends. I'm looking at this video, I'm shocked. They're all sitting there with, you know, their legs crossed and they're all doing the thing, you know, sitting there meditating. And... Um, I couldn't believe what I was looking at. And Robert's sitting in the corner there like this, you know, <laughs> with his head in his hands. Oh man, I couldn't get my shoes on quick enough. And I ran up to the, to, the, to the principal's office. They made me wait a half an hour. And so of course I got to steam even more. And so I, I'm going in and I said, what are you guys doing? 
She goes, well, that's not, that's not religious. I said, of course it is religious. Uh, she says, no, it's not at all. I said, okay, it's fine. You know, I said, we also meditate actually. Uh, currently Robert's meditating on Psalm 119. So that's okay if they meditate the way they do, just put him outside in the hallway and let him meditate on Psalm 119. And she goes, it's not going to happen. I'm like, well, um, you know, he's not going to be in that class while they meditate. He's, then you're not going <laughs> to make him meditate with Anyhow, my point in this is, um, it all turned out good. He no longer goes there. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and um, by the way, she no longer works there either. But the principle. So meditation is something that God has called us to. Why? Because in your meditation, something's happening to your heart, right? And so like Ian Bounds says right here, um, gratitude arises from my contemplation of the goodness of God. My gratitude arises from my contemplation of the goodness of God. It is bred by serious meditation on what God has done for us. Now, if you understand total depravity, if you understand unconditional election, all you need to do is contemplate on that. If you understand limited atonement, all you need to do is contemplate on that for five minutes and your heart cannot but be touched by the goodness that God has shown you. Think of when a, when a, when a man goes to a woman that had been dating for a while and he asks her for her hand in marriage. What is usually the scene? Usually what happens is she starts screaming or crying, right? For most part, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? She's like, oh, I'm so excited. Isa. What just happened? What just happened there? She just got chosen. That's what happened. And when you understand what God did for you, you can't but have your heart touched, as he says, with gratitude, as he says, gratitude arises from the contemplation of the goodness of God. It is that goodness of God that draws you to repentance. It's not the fact that God gave you a Tesla, right? It's not. <laughs> it's not the fact that God gave you a million dollars. It's not the fact that he gave you billions of dollars. That's not the goodness that draws you to repentance. Because if that was God's goodness that drew you to repentance, then Elon Musk and all of the above would be, would be worshiping God right now. Oftentimes, that's what steers them away from God. But it's the goodness of God. What goodness? It's His mercy upon you that drew you to repentance. Because no man comes to Him unless the Father draws them, right? Isn't that what it says? No man can, as a matter of fact, come to me, Jesus said, unless the Father draws him. That is the goodness of God, God drawing you. For instance, a father running to the child and draws the child, drags the child out of the street away from the truck. Again, it's a child's will, just like the apostle, just like Saul before he became the apostle Paul, God dragged him into Christ, blinded him for three days. This is the goodness of God. And when you think about the doctrines of grace, you cannot but have gratitude bubble up in your heart. 
And when gratitude bubbles up in your heart because of that high view of God, that high theology, you can just shout, Abba, Father, God, you are good to me. Thank you. I don't deserve any of it because you don't. Suddenly, not only are you filled with gratitude, you're humbled, but it leads you to actually say something, giving thanks. Where adoration is mostly a response to who God is, thanksgiving is our response to what God has done. Where adoration is mostly a response to who God is, I adore God for who He is, thanksgiving is my response to what God has done. I thank Him. Folks, let me just say this to you quick, just a heart-to-heart talk with our church family. If you don't regularly, in your car, in the shower, if you don't regularly just blurt out, God, thank you, you're so good to me. If you don't regularly just blurt that out, I really want to encourage you. Uh, uh, seriously, if you've done if you've done Bible School 101, do it again because you need to get you need to allow those doctrines to do something in your heart. If you do not walk around as a grateful person toward God, it's because you are low on high theology. Now there is shallow theology all over. But that doesn't make you grateful because the shallow theology usually puffs people up, makes them go like they're great. You know, it doesn't humble them. But high theology does. We see at least two different spiritual reasons why Thanksgiving is so foundational to prayer and why it is an element of prayer. First, Thanksgiving is, di- is in direct contrast to one of our most fundamental sins. The Apostle Paul describes this fundamental sin in Romans chapter 1. He looks at humanity and describes the sins people have given themselves to, if you know the, the whole chapter of Romans chapter 1. He lists those sins. However, the Scripture shows us that all of the sins listed in Romans chapter 1, they are all just branches of these two roots, two original sins that Paul lists right there in, in, in Romans chapter 1. The first is idolatry, and the second is ingratitude. Idolatry and ingratitude. Ingratitude is a sin. You won't believe the amount of evil that we see in the world today that was birthed from ingratitude. Go and read chapter, Romans chapter 1 and you'll see it for yourself. I will just read for you uh, chapter 1, verse 21 and 23. It says, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God. In other words, they nature told them that there is a God. They looked at, the, at nature. That's what Romans 1 talks about. And they realized there is a God in heaven. And although they knew God, verse 21 said, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But rather instead, they became futile in their thinking and in their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. In other words, here is the natural progression. Because they knew God But they didn't honor him. Sin number one. Instead, they they withheld their gratitude. They withheld their thanks from God. They said, 
No thanks to you, because I'm going to say you're not even there. I'm going to ignore you. What happens to those people is they become futile in their minds, where they will take the very thing God has made, a tree, and they will start hugging it. Or they will carve out something with half of the tree, put it there, worship it, take the other half, make a fire to keep themselves warm while they worship it. They have to worship something they have created because they refuse to worship the creator of all things, right? But in this day and age, people don't so much worship a little trinket. What they do is they worship self. All unsaved people are guilty of these two sins, idolatry and ingratitude. Every single unsaved person is. They refuse to worship God and instead they worship idols. Somebody said, I'm not a Christian, but I don't worship idols. Well, <laughs> whatever you have made most important in your life has become your idol. Could be money, could be self, it could be sex, it could be something. Whatever you hold most valuable, that's where, we, that's where the, worship, the, the word worship comes from. Whatever you worship, you idolize. The word worship comes from the word worth, worth-ship. Whatever holds highest worth to you is your idol if it's not God. So people go like, I don't worship money. What's the most important thing to you? Money? Yeah. That's your idol. That's what you worship. That's what you give your life to. Humanism. People worship man, where man is most important. So whatever is most valuable to a person is what they worship. They show gratitude after everything that God did for them. Excuse me, they show ingratitude after everything that God did for them. They still reject him. He dies on a cross. And not only are they ungrateful, they reject it altogether. Even though we have been born again, we still deal with a tendency towards these two sins. It's like some of that you know, tendency towards idolatry and ingratitude, you know, has um, lurks in the corners of our minds and our flesh and tempts us continually to cultivate ingratitude toward God. Now, we have to do this every single day. We have to show gratitude to God by thanking Him in order to work against that thing that keeps on pulling us away. And folks, I, I can't tell you how big this is to me. Um, you know, when you, when you see a church that's very alive, oftentimes they have a tremendous amount of pragmatism in there, right? For instance, um, this is common knowledge. You know, Stephen Furtick actually has people planted in the front on all sides. He actually has people planted to respond to his every word. <laughs> and, 
But he was he's excited to be in the house of the Lord. Yeah! Oh, it seems like Kim Jong-un, right? He walks out there and everybody's like, yeah! You know, like these cameras, if you ain't clapping. <laughs> and then they make them cry. Have you seen them cry in, in North Korea? Oh, yeah. They make them cry too. Our beloved leader. But, you know, that's not, oftentimes when you see a lot of excitement and a lot of energy and a lot of emotion, oftentimes there's a lot of pragmatism in there. But it's very important for us not to be excited about a God who's, who we do not know, uh, about his theology that we do not even recognize and we would reject if we heard it, we have to know that our worship is real, our adoration is real, our thanksgiving is real. It has to be real. And if it's not there, get it there. How? By getting a greater understanding of who God is. <laughs> that is why we are workers dividing the word rightly. We have to be diligent at doing this so that when, we, when that is within us, there will be an excitement about actually who God is and actually about what he has done in reality and not talking about an extra paycheck or parking spot, but what he has done for us through his grace and his mercy. It's very far few in between where you find somebody who's actually um, grateful for, for what God has done and their worship is actually alive because of it not because they love the song. You've all been to a concert, right? The last concert I went to right here in, um, I forget the arena's name right here on 95. Allstate Arena, yeah. It's an amazing thing. You stand there and you think, Man, Bono is doing a fantastic job, is he not? <laughs> and these people, this is what they're supposed to look like in church. They should, they're supposed to be adoring God, right? People praise, but they praise idols. So we have to practice, we have to practice what is in our hearts, and we have to make sure to contemplate and to meditate on what God has done because that is how gratitude rises up in our hearts which allows us to actually be an authentic person when we give him thanks. Jesus actually demands thanksgiving. Watch this quick. In Luke 17 verse 11 and 19, it says, 11, on the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee and as he entered a village, he was met by 10 lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. As they obeyed him, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was cleansed or healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Out of the ten, one goes back, and gives him thanks. Now, he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, We're not ten cleansed. Where are the, where are the other nine? Was, uh, was no one found to return? And um, 
was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner, the Samaritan? And he said to him, Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Jesus actually requires gratitude. In the, in the King James, it says, he says, go and be made whole. So 10 were healed, one was made whole, the one with gratitude. You'll find something really happens to you when you become grateful for the things that God has given you. It really does change something within you. Gratitude makes you whole. So I want to encourage you, practice gratitude. It is something God desires to work within your heart. God's doing things in your heart. That's why he's calling you to be grateful. So I want to close by reading another quote from Ian Bounds on the effects of gratitude. He says, quote, Gratitude and thanksgiving forever stand opposed to all murmurings at God's dealings with us and all complainings at our lot. He's saying gratitude and thanksgiving stands opposed to all of your murmuring and your complaining. He says, gratitude and murmuring never abide in the same heart at the same time. In other words, you cannot be grateful and complain both at the same time. A true prayer corrects complaining, it corrects murmuring, and it promotes gratitude and it promotes thanksgiving. Let's pray. Father, I pray that as we looked at these different kinds of prayer, that we will constantly come to you with a repentant heart, begging you for mercy. And we know, God, that is our only hope. We come grateful, Father. We also, Father God, look to you for who you are, and we adore you. We value, we admire all that you are, You are glorious. Help us see you more clearly in Jesus' name so that we can pray a prayer of adoration just like David did it through the Psalms, passionately with a heart on fire for you, Lord. And Lord, I pray that you help us, Father God, as we learn to give thanks well, Lord, and may we only give thanks because we are grateful. May we be grateful because we know exactly what you truly did for us. We are humbled by your goodness in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Did you get something out of the word? Amen. transgressions is forgiven blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven whose sin is covered blessed is the man to whom the lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit when i kept silent here it is when i kept silent this is the same david 
who was silent about his sins against Uriah and Bathsheba and God. When I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I have hidden. I have not hidden. I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. For this cause, everyone who is godly shall pray to you in a time when you may be found. What's he saying? He's saying that there is a time that he may not be found. Finally, Psalm 103, verse 10 and 12 says, He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. Why not? Because he's showing mercy. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed or has he removed our transgressions from us? Family, do not put repentance off. Do not kick that can down the road. Today is that day. Let's pray. Father, I pray today that you will show us in absolute clarity the times when we have been, when we had the same heart as Judas, where we were sorrowful because we harmed ourselves. We were sorrowful because we know that we have now lost something. We are sorrowful because we know we have hurt ourselves or we are now opening ourselves to punishment, loss and heartache, knowing that that is not true repentance. True repentance is when we are sorrowful for be because of what we did to you. Help us, Father God, know that if you give us 100% justice, you will not become unjust. You will not be unfair. Therefore, we know we have only one option, and that is to come to you asking you for mercy. God, we beg you for mercy. Forgive us, God. Forgive us, Lord. We know that we committed sin against you. And as we do, God, as we pray this prayer of repentance throughout the rest of our lives, God, I pray that you will keep us humble enough to receive forgiveness consistently and so maintain intimacy with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you.